Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be hearing from the original three members of the Stray Cats, Slim Jim Phantom, Lee Rocker, and Brian Setzer. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Welcome back to the Music History Project, everybody. This is a really exciting episode, although a bit of a strange one for us. We are all working separately from our own homes uh, during this pandemic. It's a, a little strange to uh, to do it this way, but we uh, really felt compelled to continue on with our podcast. So excuse the, uh, the audio might sound a little bit differently, but we're all here in spirit. And in fact, this is an exciting episode for us. Yeah, quite quite the different setup. I'm not used to uh, being alone when we record these episodes. It's usually all three of us together, and we're all virtually together right now, which is pretty close, but not the real thing. So we're going to do our best to uh, give you the usual quality of the Music History Project. We just have to imagine that there's a table between all of us right now. Right, exactly. We have the microphones <laughs> set up and everything, and then we'll all just feel better, but... For now, this is uh, this is kind of our new normal for the moment. So let's get started with today's special podcast. Um, you know, over the years, we've been so lucky to interview all three original members of the Stray Cats for the NAM Oral History Project. And so as a result, uh, today we're going to put them all together. I think this is really neat to be able to hear their backstories, how they got started, their friendship, the gears that they played, and some of the hits that they've had. So uh, this is really a neat thing for me because uh, I grew up listening to these guys, and um, I'm really excited to share these stories. So Ashley, tell us a little bit about what we're going to be hearing first. Uh, so the first uh, stray cat that we're going to be listening to is Slim Jim, uh, and he's going to be talking about music um, growing up in his household and in the neighborhood. You'll actually uh, hear that they all grew up in the same area. Uh, and then just him talking about his first drum kit and uh, the music stores he would frequent. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Oh, this thank is you, fantastic. Buddy. Thanks really for, appreciate it. Thanks for including me. One of the things I would love to talk a little bit about is how you saw your own passion for music develop. Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were a kid? Um, <clears throat> there were records around. Um, I don't even know how they really got there. My my dad was a fireman. We were a very normal um, house on Long Island. Um, but there was like Benny Goodman record. There was Hank Williams record. My mom had the first Beatles record, huh. which I think someone got her as almost like a gag gift kind of thing. Um, so... I don't really know uh, Roger Miller as one I've been remembering lately. as kind of rockabilly. So uh, people just had records back then. Mm-hmm. Like every weekend, they would have you know parties like uh, aunts and uncles, a bunch of cousins, and I would borrow their records. Um, I had two older cousins, and they had like the Rolling Stones, and they had um, uh, uh, um, you know like Yes or you know some uh, and um, my. 
My cousin was a blues guy. He had the Stones, so he had a like, Chuck Berry record as well. So I just used to borrow records, and I, and I had a drum kit. I always wanted to play. I don't remember how that came about, but I saw something on television. I think I'm too young to see the Beatles on television, but it was something, American Bandstand or Midnight Special or some show like that, and just knew I wanted to be in it somehow. Um, and um, we all grew up together. Lee and I played together since we were, you know, physically <laughs> smaller, you know. Um, and um, I just knew that I wanted to do this somehow, and that was pretty much the only thing I could think about. Um, we took lessons, all of us knew how to play, and um, uh, somehow gravitated to rockabilly all around the same time. We're all from the same school, we all knew each other. Um, but we grew up, there was a lot of guys who played. Everyone was pretty good, really. There was quite a few very good people where we, um, where we lived. Um, and uh, it just somehow came about. Like, we were all doing the same kind of research. Like, we liked this record, so if you like that, who does this guy like? And who's that guy? And, like, you eventually filter it all down, and you wind up at the first Elvis Presley record, and then it's game over. You just get completely taken over by it. And then that, of course, leads to Gene Vincent and to Eddie Cochran and to Carl Perkins and to Jerry Lee Lewis and to Little Richard and to um, like the Stones. They find out the original Chuck Berry records, uh, and it then, then, then you start getting into the compilations of the, you know the lesser known guys, and we would just get them because it was the, the, the album cover was a Hot Rod and a Jukebox, and it was so. Um, uh, and all this, you know, keep in mind is 1979 New York, Long Island, where it really wasn't on anyone's radar. So you'd have to kind of research this. They didn't really have it at the at the local record store or the chain store and you couldn't go get um, get a leopard skin shirt for a man in a in a in the mall. So um it was something that you had to seek out as well. And the whole thing appealed to us. We lived in that fashion in Massapequa on Long Island. Brian had a flat size of this room that uh, that I moved in with him and we just kind of lived that style. We went out, um, uh, we had gigs every night, uh, and we did pretty well, uh, not on the established rock scene, and not for people who were rockabillies, we just had a following of regular people who liked m music, and they found us, and so we played five shows a week for a year or so before anyone ever heard of us, um, and and we loved it because we'd go find these records and then play the song that night because we had to do four sets every night. So, um, uh, but we lived it, and we we would sleep late and go out and buy, to, you know, find uh, find record stores that might have, uh, you know, like record we'd never heard of. We'd go to the thrift stores in other towns and try to find a bowling shirt or, um, and and we played at night and we had old instruments and um, really we were very happy. That's all I, I, that was as far as I could really ever think. And then we took an adventure and made a record, and um, you know the rest is kind of a little bit more known. But um, I just knew that somehow I wanted to be a drummer and somehow be involved with music, and I still was very grateful that the other two lived near me and we went to school and had a similar kind of vision for each other. What was the first kit you got? Uh, the first kit, I think it was from the bylines, one of those things was like a Japanese drum kit, Red Sparkle or Silver Sparkle, and then um, I showed to to um, to my father that I was like into it, and that just wouldn't be some passing fancy, and I and I saved some money from uh, um, 
uh, you know, doing lawns and, uh, you know, snow shoveling in the winter, you know, like saving money. Um, maybe my aunt would kick in a little bit and saved up and got a, um, the first real kit that I had was a Slinger Land Drum kit. Um, this would have been 1977 or so. Um, and uh, I got it at Manny's on 48th Street and it was a, uh, it was a four-piece black chrome Slingerland drum kit, and then as time went by, I get, added a couple symbols by just you know working. And, um, but the first one, and I remember my father took me into New York City, which was like a big deal. It was very close as the crow flies, but to get him being from the city, to, for a lot of people then to go back to the city was kind of a drag, you know. So um, and you know parking and 48th Street and Seventh Avenue was really not the easiest thing then. Now probably ever. Um, and and I had the kit picked out. I had the whole thing, and then we you know loaded into my father's car. It was 400 bucks, I remember. Um, and uh, and then I was off because it was a real, it was a real drum kit, chrome snare drum, uh, with twelve, uh, I think a fourteen and a sixteen and twenty-two inch bass drum. Yeah, that's awesome. Good memory. Did you have um, music stores out in your neighborhood in Long Island that you went to? Uh, yeah, we did. We had Massapequa Music that we all took lessons at, um, uh, but I. I think if you wanted to get a deal or get the real stuff, you had to go into 48th Street. Um, there was also a Sam Ash on Long Island, but for some reason, um, I don't remember because I used to go into the music stores and hang out a little bit. And I, you know, the guy behind the drum counter was cool, and sometimes we're gonna get a drum kit. He, he wanted to sell, I guess, and I thought it was cool that he wanted. So um, maybe they gave me a break. They said they were. I, I doubt I was just a regular guy, but. Um, um, there was something about going into the city that was really cool about it. You know, 48th Street, just walk up and down the street there, and Pro Percussion was on 45th Street. Um, it was cool. I mean, I just thought that would be the coolest thing ever, to, like, play play at night or on the weekends and in the daytime, work at the drum department in front of the music. I, I, I had no idea. But um, but I wanted to be involved somehow with that, you know. Did you work in a store? I thought no. I heard that somewhere. No. No. No, no, I worked in a liquor store, and then, <laughs> and I was in high school, I was in a liquor store, and then the straight cast made a record. <laughs> it's all kind of like, it was all within like a very small, brief, um, all, you know, all within a year I did all th you know, three of those things, but the school worked in a liquor store, made a record with the straight cast, it was very, pew, pew, it was a fast one. I saw that you, um, you uh, used the Jim Chapin book. Yeah, I tried to, yeah, for sure, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, was it self-taught? You just got the book? or did you No, no, no. I, I d uh, we took lessons from, um, I did from a guy in Massapequa Music, a guy named Jack Falco, who was a very, very good teacher. And then um, and then from there, I took lessons from a guy named Mousy Alexander, who was, uh, who was a real jazz cat. He played with Benny Goodman and Dinah Washington, and he lived couple train stops away from us hmm. and he was an actual jazz guy he had a goatee and he said daddy-o and like he <laughs> really really did that like it wasn't an affected um, persona for him he really was that guy um, and and he gave lessons and uh, I had Jim Chapin book which I could kind of maybe do the first you know 20 pages at one point um, it's really hard but um, the um, the main thing was that the whole book is written over over swing pattern and everything else is underneath it with the snare and the kick and other um, uh, you know other places to put your 
I'm left-handed, but you're your snare drum hand. Um, uh, so I had that and the Ted Reed syncopation book, which I, I every now and again I still kind of look at. Um, those I I think too maybe there's really good ones. And I also had Carmine Apsey, who's who's my friend. Um, uh, uh, the Realistic Rock Power Rock um, uh, Enterprises. Um, oh yeah. Uh, and that had some good because sometimes you would be doing something that you didn't even know what it was. Like really, the idea that you're going doom, bop, boom, boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, boom. Okay, but you see it written down. It's like, oh, I could do it. So like, you can get a little bit of a um, uh, kind of a good feeling and a head start with like when you can already do the first few pages of something. Oh, well, I could do that one. That's what that's that's what it looks like when you write it down. So um, so um, so Carmine's one was really good. And you know, and we just played a lot. Always, we would um, Lee and I played so many times. I can't even tell you um. Uh, we would rehearse in his garage, he would go boom and I would go bop and we would practice just as the two of us and then we had numerous bands where we would play the blues and um, uh, uh, and tried to write our own songs and uh, we um, but we were ready for the opportunity when the Stray Cats came and uh, which you know, was really just the three of us all saying well you like Buddy Holly too and it was just really coming together um, and um, wanting to just play this music and wanting to know more about it, wanting to live that way or what we thought that way was and uh, I, you know, look the part, act the part, dress the part, you know, just like look the whole thing. And we were just um, very, very grateful that there was two others on, in a, you know, in a two block radius that felt the same way. So once again, that was Slim Jim Phantom from his 2019 NAM Oral History interview. And that was a really cool interview that I got to be a part of with Dan. Um, it was down at the venue Humphreys in San Diego, right on the water. Really nice place. That was actually my first time being there. So kind of a treat. Um, and next up, we're going to hear Lee Rocker. Uh, what was that interview like for you, Dan? Well, that was an amazing interview for me. Uh, we were invited to his home in Huntington Beach. And I mean, he was just, he's a kid. You know, he had a jukebox, he had pinball machines. It was really a gumball machine. Uh, it was really a fun room that we got to set up in. And, you know, he, I know he's a busy guy and he was particularly busy then. He had an album he was working on and a tour he was about to start. He had a suitcase out with clothes being packed. So I know I kind of came at sort of a bad time, but you know what? He took the time. I really appreciated that about him. Uh, so I'm excited to share this interview with you as we continue with this first segment about uh, them growing up and meeting each other and their first instruments. Uh, let's hear from Lee Rocker. All right. Hey, Lee, thank you so much for having me come over. I really appreciate it. You got it. You know, one of the things I think would be really kind of uh, cool to uh, document is... Uh, just your own passion for music and how you saw that develop in your life. Did you have a lot of music in your house when you were a kid? Absolutely. Um, I got a an interesting musical background, actually, that uh, my dad was the solo clarinetist for the New York Philharmonic for 61 years and uh, a professor of music at Juilliard. And my mom is also a clarinetist, uh, professor of music at Hofstra University in New York. And... Uh, had a chamber group, still does actually, called American Chamber Ensemble. So I grew up in a house really filled with classical music, believe it or not. Uh, you know, so there was classical music, but there was, there was all kinds of music. I mean, there was opera, there was jazz, 
there wasn't much rock and roll, but but I really brought that into the house. So uh, music was always just constantly being rehearsed, taught, played, and listened to. So it was a great environment. That's cool. And so what sort of things did you glean from your classical roots as far as your own playing, do you think? Well, I first started, uh, you know, the only rule really growing up uh, in my parents' house was that you played music. Uh, you know, we didn't play football, we didn't play baseball, but music was really the, the mandatory thing. And uh, I tried a few things. I tried piano, I tried clarinet. Uh, but I really, and this is about six or seven years old, uh, started playing cello. And that's the first thing I really was attached with to some degree. Uh, at that point, it wasn't my passion. It's something that I just did. It was just one of those things, whatever it was like, Thursday you had a cello lesson. Um, and part of it is, I love all types of music. I really think there's only, you know, good music is good music regardless of the style, you know. Um, but it evolved. And I played cello from maybe six to around 13. And then it was really all about rock and roll. I picked up an electric bass and uh, started a band in, in the garage with a bunch of friends. Uh, and then uh, from there, at around 15 or so, I got an upright bass. And I really started to focus in on what the music is that really speaks to me. And that was rock and roll, I mean, real rock and roll with the roll, not just the rock, uh, and rockabilly music. And uh, really from, the band I started was the Stray Cats, uh, the, the best known one at that point. And Brian and Jim, this was in Massapequa, New York, uh, were school friends of mine from 10 or 11 years old. And we worked together for, uh, for a lot of years and every once in a while we still do. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So where, where, where did you get the bass? How did that come about? Um, I was playing electric bass in junior high school and high school rock and roll bands, along with Brian and Jim and, and other friends. Uh, and the music that I loved, that I started to, it wasn't well known, at least in my circles uh, at that time, that was like the mid, mid to late 70s, uh, was music by Carl Perkins and uh, Jerry Lewis and Johnny Cash and you know I couldn't uh, I couldn't that's not electric bass music you know I was hearing something in those tracks that had this propulsion it had this kind of slap thing which is an upright bass technique and it's really there's a big part of it that's percussion as well as being bass so it's it's sort of a bridge in my mind in a lot of ways between uh, drums and bass and guitar it really covers a lot of ground and an upright bass to me just has such a diverse voice that there's so much you can do with it I mean it, it really just it hooked me you know for whatever reason it just got me and the physicalness of it as well um, I mean you're standing with something that's bigger than you and uh and and it takes uh, some muscle and some physical thing to it. It just it felt great. That's fantastic. <laughs> and so, who were you listening to as far as rock and roll bass players? I listened to everything. I mean, this 
in that era, uh, mid to late seventies. I mean, obviously there was no internet. Um, it was it was the radio, you know. So what, whatever came on the radio, whether it was the Stones or Beatles, uh, you know, it, it was there was disco going on, which I couldn't take. That was kind of the enemy. Uh, that music and there was like progressive rock that had which is fine I'm not knocking what anyone does artistically but but for me that was such a uh, opposite of what I wanted to do I like things stripped down and organic as opposed to being synthesized and large groups um, so that that's just the direction uh, the direction that I felt most comfortable doing that and so I'm hearing music through uh, the radio jukeboxes uh believe it or not uh i remember as a teenager sneaking into cbgb's which is a place i wound up playing a lot of music at and uh cbgb's i mean sort of known as you know ground zero for punk music in new york but it was so much more than than punk music uh that jukebox i mean had elvis presley doing blue moon of kentucky and that's all right mama next to the buzzcocks and uh you know the dictators so uh i do remember hearing that there and kind of haunting old record shops in greenwich village and just filing through this and going wow that looks cool who is that you know it's carl perkins first record or something and i took it really as uh it was a discovery i mean it, it was it was a cool thing i mean to like go and discover things that you weren't hearing and that not everyone knew about hmm. Very cool. Yeah, that's amazing to me. What a great era for that discovery, too. Yeah, well, it was it was more difficult to discover things, too, uh, because there was no Internet. You couldn't Google anything, you know. Uh, there were three or four or five. There was the Village Voice. Um, but there were rock newspapers, and that's really... I mean, I know there still is, but at that point in time, they were really important. That's where you got your news. So I was in New York... And uh, at these same record shops, look around, you could buy a copy of the NME, the New Musical Express, out of London, or Melody Maker, um, and uh, a couple of others I'm not remembering the names of. But those newspapers were really, you'd wait each week to get that and see what was going on. So it took, it took some digging and some work. And uh, maybe that work had something to do with the value that you placed on it at that time, because it wasn't, it wasn't so easy. Yeah, well said. Absolutely. I totally agree. So I wonder, um, can you tell me a little bit about how the Stray Cats got started, where the name came from, and some of your early gigs? Sure. Um, Stray Cats, really, Brian Setzer, Slim Jim, and myself knew each other. We grew up in a town called Massapequa, New York. Uh, we probably know each other. The three of us lived in the same neighborhood. I mean, Brian was over one block to the left. Jim was one block or two blocks to the right. And we knew each other since we were probably 10 or 11 years old. Uh, there was a really cool community out there of teenagers and kids playing music. Uh, and, you know, uh, we all knew each other. We all jammed together. We... Uh, my dad's garage basically was filled with amps and a crappy little PA and a drum kit. And, uh, and you know, people would get together and play, and, and, uh, and we did the same. Uh, so really, as teenagers, we would jam and, and practice and rehearse. 
and start to do gigs together uh, around Long Island, uh, different corner bars, like really, you know, uh, some rock clubs, some places that didn't even normally have music. And uh, we did that for a while, and then we started to expand. Mass Speak was about 30 miles to uh, New York City. And uh, this was 78, 79, and uh, we would go into CBGB's at Max's Kansas City, and we would do gigs as well. And like I was saying earlier, with these rock and roll newspapers there in the city, you know, you'd kind of know what was going on in London and other places. Uh, we were really, the band had a power. And the one thing we knew, and we didn't know much at that point, I mean, I was probably 16 years old, uh, was that the three of us worked together. There was a chemistry, and it connected with an audience. So the band really very quickly started to draw big crowds at these little places out on Long Island. Uh, we do, you know, one every Tuesday, a different one every Thursday, and after just a couple of weeks, there would be lines down the block, and we knew it worked, and that it just had a reaction. We brought it into New York City. The same thing started to happen. So that was uh, Lee Rocker talking about uh, music growing up in his family, and uh, the first instrument he had, and how the Stray Cats actually came together, which I loved hearing the story of um, how they all just lived a few blocks away from each other, just amazing odds of that happening. Uh, So we're going to continue actually hearing from Lee, uh, talking about the beginning, uh, early beginnings of the Stray Cats, and uh, really loved listening to uh, this interview. He just had some amazing stories about them uh, going to London when they were like 18 years old and trying to find places to sleep, uh, sleeping in Hyde Park at, during the day and 24-hour movie theaters and just the crazy stuff that they did, but they just jumped on a plane and they knew they wanted to do it. So um, here's Lee Rocker talking about the beginning of the Cats. We called the band the Teds for a while, which was an abbreviation for Teddy Boys. These are the guys in... in uh, England, who would dress up, I'm not really dressed for this now, but with the Kentucky Colonel ties and these long drape coats and creeper shoes with the big crepe soles. Um, and we had read about them. We'd never really, besides, you know, what this is, but that there was a rockabilly scene that had gone on in the UK since the 50s and never never let go. So that was one of the names. Uh, uh, I think we were Brian and the Tomcats for a couple of weeks. We were, we were the Teds. Uh, and... In the summer of 1980, I was 17 years old. Uh, the other guys were 18 and 19. Uh, we up and left New York and moved to London and bought four seats on a plane. There was uh, three of us and one for my base. And we basically, just without any plan and not much thought, um, took a flight to London and... Uh, knocked on doors of these nightclubs that we had seen advertised in these rock and roll newspapers. Uh, we lived in Hyde Park for a while. Uh, you could uh, pay the park guy, I'm going to say ranger, but it's not a ranger, but it's in the middle of the city, uh, 25 cents, and they'd have like kind of these lounge chairs, you know, so you'd be out all night, and you'd sleep all day in the chair. And uh, things pretty quickly, luckily it was summer. Uh, that was in June by... Uh, September, we started to have uh, record companies uh, courting us and making sure we had a place to live and the rest of it, and got a record deal, and the the rest uh, 
fell together, uh, as they say. You know, the rest is history, really. We had a first uh, hit record, I think, by November of that year. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. From Hyde Park to a hit record. Yeah, pretty amazing. It is. We also slept in all-night movie theaters. Um, <laughs> you know, we were pretty resourceful, I got to say, you know. Uh, the theaters... One of them played all night Three Stooges. The other ones played all night pornography. <laughs> <laughs> so, I true ask story. Which one you got more sleep? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember, but uh, <laughs> but you know what? It uh, it made sense at the time, you know. That's crazy. Yeah. So were you guys playing Rockabilly from the beginning, like yeah. when you were the Teds and oh, yeah. going back? It, it was Rockabilly. Uh, you know, at that time in high school and, and that kind of period of discovery for myself uh, and the band, uh, we would find these records, like I said, by Carl Perkins and the Sun Sessions, Elvis Presley's first record. Uh, up until that point, all I knew about Elvis was the Vegas stuff, and that, that didn't appeal to me at that point in my life. At this point now, I can listen to the Vegas stuff and go, man, that, that guy could sing. But it was just, I couldn't relate to it. But when I heard the first rock and roll Elvis Presley record, that was like, wow, uh, you know, it killed me. And uh, Buddy Holly, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, the Johnny Burnett trio, these are the guys that sort of, if there, if there was a Mount Rushmore of rock and roll, their faces would be on the side of that mountain. And they really, uh, you know, five or six or seven people, uh, Little Richard, uh, Chuck Berry, uh, they're the architects of rock and roll and everything that followed it. And in my mind, they're also, that early rock and roll rockabilly is truly uh, the original punk rock because it was an outrage they burned their records. I mean, people, the adults at the time, they couldn't believe it. I mean, this was, this was young America and throwing off, you know, the, the music and what had come before it was about energy and passion and rebelliousness and also fun. So uh, it, it is truly uh, where punk rock got its inspiration. So at what point were you guys writing your own tunes? Was that early on as well? Yeah, we would write some. You know, I mean, the set, I mean, at that point, we were doing four sets a night in bars and, uh, out on Long Island. So, you know, there'd be a lot of cover songs, but we certainly would, would write some songs ourselves. Uh, and that, you know, that we wrote more and more over the years. Uh, to the point where the first record we we cut in England was, you know, probably, I don't know, 80% stuff we had written. Mm -hmm. But the Stray Cats as a band, and myself in the many, many years since then, um, I always write music and, and include a, you know, whatever proportion that is in any given year. But I also love to, a great song is a great song. And... I like putting my own stamp on a great piece of music and doing it my way. So, you know, it's a mix. Very cool. So what led to the, the first hit record? How, how did uh, you guys come up with that? The first hit that we had in Europe, and that was a hit 
really everywhere in the world, we, we toured like crazy, we didn't have a US record deal yet, was a song called Runaway Boys. And that really was sort of our story. So if you listen to the lyrics of it to, to a, a good degree, that's really who we were at that point. Like I said, I was 17. Uh, uh, Jim was 18, Brian was 19 uh, when we had that first hit record. And, and we stayed in Europe and recorded and toured the world, including uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all over Europe uh, for three or four years. I mean, it was two, two years, two or three years uh, before returning to the U.S. and uh, taking our first two albums and uh, combining those into the first U.S. record, which, when it came out here, went uh, straight up to the, the top of the Billboard charts to almost actually to uh, number two behind Michael Jackson's Thriller for six and a half months in uh, 1982. Yeah, it was crazy. pretty crazy days. Were you guys apprehensive that maybe America wouldn't get it? Um, I don't, you know, I never really planned anything. There was no master plan. There was uh, there were some nerves involved. One of the things that happened is the the band, we really nailed it in Europe and we were really embraced by a lot of the, a lot of the English rock bands. Um, whether it was Robert Plant coming down and singing with us or, or the Rolling Stones were really friends and supported the band. So when we first, uh, put the record out in America, one of the things that happened is we went, we went out with the Rolling Stones for a couple of dates. We did Atlanta, we did Cedar Rapids, we did a couple of other cities as well. So that was nerve-wracking. I mean, opening, being relatively unknown and opening for the Rolling Stones, but, but we definitely had, uh, and that was, that was crazy, but we definitely uh, had the attention of everybody. And what I've done, uh, in playing this music and what we've done as a band at that point, it had roots and people like the Stones and uh, Carl Perkins, who was a dear, dear friend, I got to work with a lot over the years, um, Willie Nelson, is these people recognized where we were coming from and embraced the band. So we did shows with uh, Willie, with all kinds of people. I was going to talk about that a little bit later on, but now that you mentioned it, I think it's totally awesome as a as a music fan you got to work with some of your heroes mm -hmm. you know i see scotty moore up here he, you know i mean how incredible is that absolutely um i've been fortunate um you know as a musician and a solo artist to have worked with uh so many great players and so many of these musicians that i grew up idolizing and uh it's been, it's been a trip, you know. Uh, as I said, I mean, Carl Perkins, to me, is really maybe not the household name of the Stones, but in terms of what he did, I mean, writing Blue Suede Shoes, and I, I got to work a tremendous amount with him uh, up to his last record, which is a great record called Go Cat Go. Uh, I did TV specials with him. Uh, I did the soundtrack to... Porky's Revenge Part Three, I think, with him, you know. So, uh, 
But I've, I've been really uh, uh, fortunate to have the opportunity to work with a hell of a lot of the players that I grew up loving. So once again, that was Lee Rocker from the Stray Cats. Next up, we are going to be talking more about the gear, which at NAM this is our favorite subject. And first, we're going to hear from Slim Jim Phantom, who is known for playing a drum kit called a cocktail drum kit. And those drum sets are actually stand-up. You stand up and you play. Um, it's still like a, a bass drum, but it's almost like a bass drum floor tom combo um, with a snare in the middle, and you get some cymbals, and a lot of guys put auxiliary percussion around them as well. And it's just a really cool instrument because you're able to play the drums but be center stage with the bass player and the guitarist instead of being in the back like the drummer usually is. So let's hear Slim Jim talk a little bit about his cocktail kit, his other drum sets, his endorsements, and then some changes in live sound over the years. I'm kind of curious about the the cocktail kit. I mean, how did you come up with that? That was certainly before a lot of other people were doing that setup. Yeah, my kit is really a rock kit. I mean, a cocktail kit, you could, you know, knock it over with a feather. I'm like as rock as anybody. Um, It's really a regular drum kit. I just stand up and play it. which is just really what what I do is very rock. It, it's just you move this. You really just make the stands go higher. Um, it's like 22 inch kick, not um, that plays into itself. It's a freestanding thing, not like cocktail kick that plays underneath. Um, and it's a you know rock snare drum. Uh, um, to you know, really, when you boil it down, I don't have any less than Ringo or Charlie Watts, or uh, it's it's really the same kind of thing. Um, uh, it's just really how how we lay it out because on a bunch of songs we bring a tom um tom tom on and off, hi hat on and off. It's really just the difference of um, really where where we put it and kind of how we approached it but but the the equipment itself is very rock um it's um heavy duty stands and um a pedal and um um i use bigger sticks than most of the i, I use a 5b stick uh, which is a lot of even rock guys use you know five a's but um um that's a little bit of the misperception of it in a good way really um because a lot of that stuff and and we love it those 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 kind of cocktail those uh, vintage drums which I love all that stuff it just can't stand up to the abuse that it gets and being on the road that much and where the stray cats are pretty loud and it's 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 really not um, uh, not not a rinky dink affair in any way it's um it's it's very much you know modern and um, uh, um, we love the old stuff but I mean, I see, like, say, Ringo, and um, if you watch the film from Shea Stadium, like, the, the cymbal stands are almost getting blown over, you know? And, uh, um, and, like, I see these old jazz guys, and I try to think of how the hardware and all that stuff stood up to being strapped onto the top of a, a, of a station wagon or in, like, Greyhound bus. I don't know how that stuff lasted, because in my experience, you have to have kind of, you know, heavy-duty stuff to, um, to be on the road. I'm also kind of curious, when you guys got, came into a little popularity and had a choice of upgrading your gear, what was the first couple of things that you wanted to upgrade to? Was it hardware or a specific snare um, or something? Well, yeah, I, 
I don't know if I ever had bad gear. Like, um, like in the beginning, I had like a Japanese drum kit, which was you know the. But but ever since I had a Slingerland drum kit, I never really had bad equipment after that. Um, um, I did. Um, uh, have an endorsement with Gretsch for now for a hundred years. Fred and Diana Gretsch, two of my ultimate people. Um, uh, my I, I, kind of funny thing. Um, I my endorsement world is exactly the dream that you would have when I was a kid. I was. Uh, you know, reading Modern Drummer and uh, uh, Downbeat, and I would clip the ads out and hang them on my um, the, the back of my bed. Um, and I have an endorsement with Gretsch. My my endorsement contract signed by Fred Gretsch. I have lifetime endorsement with Zildjian, signed by Armin Zildjian, and I have a lifetime because when things change in corporate world about drumsticks, I have a. You know, typewritten and signed by Vic Firth. So, um, and that's and that's all I've ever really needed. And and um, sometimes I see Fred, and he'll say, "Oh, this crazy kid." And I said, "Fred, I'm like old now. <laughs> you should see this kid. He stands up on the drum and like Fred. I, that was like, believe it or not, that was like 38 years ago. You know. Um, so uh, um, I, I'm you know very blessed when it comes to that. Um, I've always. Um, you know, been respected and uh, you know was able to, you know, have the stuff that we want, because I think we speak to like a cross section of people. You know, um, there's um, like it swings. You know, so like the jazz cats are into it, and um, and it rocks hard. So uh, so so like you'll see rock and roll guys, and that also translates into endorsers and like uh, um, uh, uh, you know the gear that you use. So so with that, I'm very very fortunate and very grateful for that. That's awesome. You know, one of the areas that uh, the NAM community is getting more and more into is live sound. And I would mm. love to talk a little bit about, because there's been huge changes in how sure. uh, that whole thing has changed since you guys first started. What, what have you seen as far as the, the big, maybe technological changes of live sound? Um, I don't know if I know that much about it, to be honest with you. Um, I do know that... Um, uh, um, and something that we invented a long time ago, we like internally mic a lot of the stuff because, um, well, the kick drum anyway, because the Stray Cats, what we do, it's um, like a lot of it is, um, is, is um, perception and like appearance. There's, there's a lot more that goes into it than just what you see. Like, so, so we're going for a sleek look. So in the middle, and we're you know, running around, and um, the guys go in front of me, and I go around the drums. And if we had like a bass drum microphone on a stand, first of all, it looks out of place. We're trying to get it, and and it can be tripped over and you know knocked out and all that. Um, so we we internally mic our um, you know our drums. So like you can't really see the microphone. It doesn't get in the way which then lends itself to its own own set of problems because we don't um, like a hole in the in the front of the kick drum head because we have a beautiful you know logo on it um, so um, so you know there's that kind of stuff but I think the microphones are probably you know the basic sure microphones that really haven't been improved on as far as I can see um, um, they um, you know, they sound great. It's really just about the positioning of it all. That I, um, uh, the live sound, I do know, I mean, I hear every night that, you know, it sounds good. And I think the real question with the Stray Cats would be with Lee on that because miking a, uh, a double bass, I think, is something that they kind of invented because it was never meant to be an electrified instrument. I think if you see any old photos, um, uh, 
of of the original rock and roll bands that we love so much, it's guys are standing in front of a microphone, mm, good and that's why you he, uh, hear on those early Elvis Presley kind of live records that have come to light. You, they're playing along, and then all of a sudden you just don't hear the bass for two, three minutes, and then if you see the film, you know, link up, it's because Bill picked up the bass and, you know, walked around and Elvis jumped on it, or there was something because he stepped away from the microphone that he had to play into. So, I think in the Stray Cats, really, the, um, the interview is with Lee on this because he really, the drums we mic and we try to keep it all sleek and into one junction box so all the mics go into a little, so it has a visual thing of being very streamlined. But um, I think the techie thing, the double bass was really how we, um, how we changed the game, I think, which now has become, I think, the standard way of doing it for the thousand rockabilly bands out there. I think it's pretty much what we, Lee, came up with. Well said, yeah. Do you have a favorite gig that you guys have done? Anything come to mind? Well, we just did the Greek theater in L.A. the other night, and I think that was probably the best thing ever you know everybody was there you know the guest list was you know it's in it it's in LA and we hadn't played in a while so all of our friends were there and my wife plays an Eagles of Death Metal and they they were the special guests on the show yeah. she's a bass player um, you know we should get her one day to do this one um, yeah. she endorses Fender and Orange and um, uh, so really that was the one that comes to mind because we just did it a few days ago and it was one that was on the books for six, eight months and it's like, <laughs> like when you agree to these things, they seem like, well, August 28th is never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like December of 2017, right? And and then it happens, and it's like near, nearing and nearing and nearing, and um, then you have to actually go on the stage and do that show that night. An hour and a half, two hours later, it's it's over, and there's a nice party. But like. That was when it was just a couple days ago. So like all the ones after that are going to be woo. And we played New York, um, which was a hometown one for us a few weeks ago. And that was another one that was all, all my family, you know. You know, the cousin who I borrowed the Chuck Berry record from, like was there, you know, like great in a fantastic way, you know. Um, um, so, uh, but really Greek theater in LA was the one and Pier 17 in New York. And then there's a few that slip in, like personally, a few days before we did the Greek theater, we did someone in Salt Lake City, which was, you know, on the itinerary, oh, we played in Salt Lake City the day before, and it was a beautiful amphitheater, mm. and it was one of those nights where you just, the hands were just doing anything that you told them to, you didn't really think too much about it, it was a breeze coming off the, it was just a nice, you know, just a beautiful gig out of nowhere, which you, all of them are good in their own way, but, um, it was the calm, the calm before the Greek theater storm, and uh, which was, you know, after you weather a storm, it's usually, you know, that was the best sailing, that one, when you get through. <laughs> well, you know, um, we hear a lot about rock bands fighting and, you know, disbanding, and you guys have been together for such a long time. Any advice to young musicians getting together in the band? How do you stay together? Uh, Well, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. Um, for us, the main thing is now that everyone gives each other space. Back, sometimes it's not possible, which it wasn't for us for the first, you know, we went from sharing a flat the size of this room into a lot of success. Um, so you're in a plane, you're in a van, you're in a car, you're in a bus, you're in a, um, you're in a dressing room. Um, so there's no way around that. You really just have to 
try to think of the other guys, you know, like the golden rule, I suppose, you know. Um, but there's really no advice to that. Really, um, I mean, it helps if you have a success and then you kind of have a common goal. But for us, the original common goal was we love this music. So um, there was three guys, including me, that knew about Carl Perkins in Massapequa, right? So that was really the main thing. So. I think if you have a common love of the music and the music, try to rely on that. Whenever someone's having a bad time or whenever you want to say, you know, you ate my sandwich or whatever, try to think of how much you really love the music. And the thing that I do, and, and I say it, if there's any, you know, the, the plane is late or you're in an airport for 10 hours, you're in a dressing room but they don't have any coffee or they don't, whatever it is, right? What's the one worst thing? No gig, right? So yeah. that gets me through life in general, you know? So I think that's really what I would say to anyone. If I was managing some band, I would say, all right, well, don't do the gig. Well, I didn't say that. Well, then go home. Well, I didn't say that. Well, then wait on the plane. Well, then wait till the electricity comes back on in the club. It's really, it's pretty much, I think when you boil it down, boil it down, boil it down, come down to the to the Chuck Berry of choices. You know what I mean? It's very simple. You know, like do it or don't do it. You know. So uh, continuing with the uh, segment here of gear and live sound and microphones and all of that stuff, I think it'd be really neat to uh, hear from Lee Rocker again. Um, this is a really neat segment that uh, Ashley uh, called from the interview that we did for the oral history program here at NAM. that fits in perfectly with what Slim Jim was just talking about, and that is experimenting with different elements of his, uh, of his instrument, different strings and pickups, um, and uh, of course those, uh, those famous slaps all had to be recorded uh, perfectly uh, that helped really make those uh, records pop, and he talks a little bit about that as well. So here we're going back to Lee Rocker. You guys really started this resurgence of, of rockabilly. A lot of people give you guys the credit for bringing that back. What did that feel like for you when all these other bands started popping up and all these other great tunes started coming out? Um, it felt great. Uh, you know, rockabilly has been around since the 50s, and it, it was a really brief time that there were hits with it, although the music lives on and it's part of the whole fabric, really, of of the music of, of America. But, um, you know, there was a point from, I don't know, 56 to, uh, let's maybe, let's call it 1960, where there were rockabilly music that were hit records. And then, although people were playing it, it vanished from the charts, really, uh, until, until us with the Stray Cats in a in the 80s, in that decade. Um, you know, I don't know, personally, uh, uh, there must have been some, but I, I don't think there were many hit records with an upright bass on it from 1960 to 1980. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of having that, being in that position and being a part of that. Uh, and bands did come along. There were bands playing it before us. I mean, uh, there, there certainly were. They, they uh, for one reason or another, they weren't, they were in honky tonks and bars. They weren't on the world stage making hit records. Uh, since the Stray Cats, there definitely was a big movement towards, you know, 
rockabilly or you don't even have to tie it so closely with that phrase i mean rock and roll you know uh great bands i mean the fabulous thunderbirds and and uh you know uh, blues bands and and i believe that we were a you know from steve ray vaughn and others I, I believe that we were a part of that movement and helping spark that movement you know towards organic uh american music yeah well said absolutely yeah no doubt so did uh, did your bass did you play the same bass or did you switch up and start experimenting with other sizes and other tones and so on always upright bass i mean i had a lot of different ones and and uh they take a beating you know or especially back then you know and touring just beats up an upright bass even with these trunks when you came in i mean there's one with the the hinges falling off it that just came back from uh some concerts i was doing um but i do experiment with sounds i, I always use a three-quarter size bass which is the standard the most common size upright bass there's a full size gigantic there's a seven eighths there's a half size but a three-quarter is what you see most of the time with most players um i definitely over the years experiment with sounds um with different pickups different strings either steel strings and magnetic pickups is one of the first things that i did and running it through uh an ampeg svt amp uh and getting more of a growl and getting more of an electric tone to it along with the the right hand kind of slap technique uh i usually well, i should say i hopefully always uh, try to play for the song and for the album and for what that that vision is in the earlier Stray Cats days that did have more of a punk edge and I was definitely turning the gain up a little bit more and it was a very thick uh, low end on it with a lot of air moving and a lot of volume uh, other records at other points in my career have gone for a more traditional sound with a piezo pickup and gut strings or in the studio no amps at all and just experimenting with different mics in different places uh so yeah certainly always looking for uh, different sounds and once in a while an electric bass too but that's just not something i do that often i like to get those tones out of uh out of an electric and since this is for nam i have to uh mention that when i first got uh an upright bass uh out on Long Island, went to a guy, took my bass, and knew of a guy who lived in town, who winds up, I didn't realize at the time, he's a real legend, uh, also lived in Massapequa, a guy, Jess Oliver. Jess Oliver uh, designed the Ampeg B3. Uh, I, I, he designed a lot of amplifiers for Ampeg, and really the sort of uh, a genius of amplification at that time. And he had, in his basement, an electronic shop and I brought him my bass and we talked about what I was going to do and what I wanted to do and we built a bracket and put it on the end of the fingerboard and took uh, a magnetic electric bass pickup and screwed it into the bottom of the fingerboard and helped me set up my first bass and I'm still still using Ampeg all these years later so I gotta I gotta send my uh Thanks out to the memory of of, uh, of him, Jess Oliver. 
I got to interview him once. What an amazing guy. Yeah. He had a, at that point, he had left Ampeg and he had a company called Oliver Amps. And that was my first amplifier. Yeah. I hadn't been to his place. I can only imagine he had quite the shop. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, uh, suburban home, you know, and a basement shop with all kinds of tubes and magnets and everything, you know. It was very cool. That is neat. That's yeah. very cool. Wow. Yeah, it was quite an innovator. Yeah. I mean, even the plexiglass, the uh, the baby base, the Chubby Jackson model, I think they called it. Yeah, he did all kinds yeah. of stuff. So somehow I crossed paths with him at like, I don't know, 15 or 14 or something, you know? <laughs> very cool. Yeah. I, I was listening to some of the more recent recordings, and since you had mentioned... Miking. I wonder what have you learned about miking the bass? If you don't amplify it, what what tricks or what thoughts do you have about that? You know, it with the upright bass in general, maybe with every bass, but especially acoustic instruments, I should say, setup is ninety percent of it. You know, you can have a Stradivarius or or a whatever or a student instrument, and setup is, is ultimately important, that the sound post is in the right place, that the bridge is positioned right, that you've got high quality strings, the tailpiece, um, just those aspects alone. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of my bases hot rod with, a, with a auto body paint, that tends to actually tighten the sound up when you amplify it, which, I, which is interesting. Maybe it's that some bases are very rickety, and when you start to put that heavy gloss paint on it, it sort of tightens everything up and tightens up the tone uh, to some degree. Um, but in terms of miking, I, I'm just a fan of experimenting and trying things. I mean, I was in the studio a few days ago and I used a 421. Um, not too close. I mean, I, we backed it off a little bit right off of the bridge. Sometimes I'll take uh, another microphone uh, up on my left hand uh, to get a little bit of finger noise, depending on if I'm slapping or kind of walking bass. And, you know, the studio, to me, is just really the most fun because you can take your time and be critical and listen and try different things, you know. Um, Normally, I will try a number of things, like on, on a session for myself or for somebody else. I will mic the bridge. I'll put a mic up top by my left hand. So I've got two microphones. I'll run an amplifier in an ISO room. We'll put a mic in front of it. We'll do a DI. Uh, so much of the time, uh, sometimes we'll distant mic an amp. I'm running four or five tracks of bass. And then get in there and... Uh, find a blend that I like. With that said, recently, just the way I've been going, I mean, things might be different the next album, but for at this point, I've been gravitating more and more towards the uh, uh, a close microphone and really liking the traditional sound of, of a good instrument. Yeah, very interesting. I, I always think about things like that, you know, when I listen to like Billy Black and, and folks like, you know, they, it wasn't like the dark ages, but there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of thought put into where exactly do you put the microphone? You know, it was more of, let's just get the general sound. Yeah, well, especially, you know, and, it, and I think that's how it was. I mean, uh, 
especially when when a lot of recordings, and there's a hell of a lot to be said for it, but when a lot of recordings were done without overdubs in one room and you had a lot of bleed, meaning, you know, every instrument's a little bit is getting into every microphone. You got drums four feet away from you. So it was a little bit more like general, let's get it on tape, guys, and, and take it from there, as opposed to the, the isolation uh, way that became really big in the 70s. Uh, uh, of every instrument being completely isolated from each other and much of the time being recorded separately. I like to find, depending on the song and the situation, some kind of happy mid-ground between that. I have no problem with uh, records being made with lots of overdubs, but I do like to get the rhythm tracks. I like to get certain things as live as possible. I like live drums. You know, either they're right or they're wrong. Get it, you know, don't fix it in my mind. Get it right the first time, uh, the foundation. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm, as a producer, I'm happy to work with players and do overdubs uh, all the time, but I like them to be single performances. I don't like to piece together, okay, the first bar from this solo and the third bar from that. Um, unless you have to, I like to get someone to go in there and perform. It's tempting, though, I bet, with all the technology that, well, okay, I could just... Sure. You hear that one thing? It's like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, I listened back to recordings that, uh, that I did uh, at the onset, and uh, there's been times I went like, oh, man, I wish I would have fixed that. And, uh, and you really couldn't. You know, I mean, it's the, we were all in the same room, you know, but there's a certain... There, there's a realness to it, though, you know? And now you get young bands now you know, covering those songs and copying your mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. That's scary, I guess. Yeah, I yeah exactly. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> well, I know that there's, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your, your thoughts on, um, on the music, because you're right, you were saying that it's not just rockabilly that you guys represented it and and really if it's possible there was a punk element oh yeah it. and i wonder what what were your thoughts about that medium as far as kids being able to express themselves i think you know it it was it's fantastic i mean and that's what you know uh that moment of punk was, you know, it wasn't, you know, about musical skill. And that's okay. It was about expressing yourself. And, you know, who should knock anything that speaks to to a generation and, and expresses something? I mean, was that really is the bottom line here, um, is connecting. Uh, and, you know, I love the Dead Boys and the Sex Pistols. And, uh, you know, uh, the Ramones, not, not that they were really a punk band, but, you know, the bands of that day, I mean, it was loud and fast and passionate, and it, it was what was going on at the time, and we had an element to what we were doing that, that fit right in with that, and we were influenced by. Um, so I, I'm all for it. I mean, I think that people have got to make music that... Uh, is their voice and speaks to 
speaks to their generation of people. Mm -hmm. Right, because what you find is you're not the only one with that feeling. No. And that's the thing about music. It's got to bring people together, you know. Um, and and it does. I mean, it, it really defines us. And, uh, you know, music to me is, has been my uh, focus of my life and my identity. And as a young person, I mean, incredibly so. I mean, I remember growing up, I mean, who you listened to was who you were. And that's who you, your friends listened to those bands. And, and that's how it still is, you know, and that's how it's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. So, what do your folks think of uh, of your rebellious side of, of music? I they're great with it, and I don't necessarily see it as a rebellion. How I what I did, and I don't think they do either. Uh, it was more of an extension, you know. Um, they were always incredibly supportive. Uh, they still are. They're actually still performing. Concerts, uh, maybe music keeps you going. My dad is uh, 85 years old. I'm heading out to New York uh, next week to see him do the Mozart clarinet concerto. So, uh, so they're going, and it, it's fantastic. And and as I was saying, when I grew up in this household full of music, uh, we had people in our family from generations before that were in vaudeville, and uh, my grandfather played jazz saxophone, and you know, it was sort of the family business in a way, um, which is interesting uh, for me. And and there's a great continuity. Uh, and it's not that way, and it doesn't need to be that way, though. I mean, if that's not your background, that doesn't matter either, you know. Um, uh, but in my case, it just happened to be that there was a lot of us. So I didn't get any resistance. Maybe that's, that's the thing, you know. They, they understood what I was doing. I was out doing gigs. And they got that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you kind of touched on this, but to ask you directly, um, how would you put to words what music means to you? That's, you know, I, I can throw out a couple of thoughts on that, but it's, you know, it's, it's self-expression and creativity and, and uh, you know, it, it brings me a, a hell of a lot of happiness getting on stage and playing. It's what feels right when I'm doing it. And I think, uh, you know, like any of the arts, sort of, uh, you know, maybe it's also a uh, an attempt to uh, live on when you're gone, you know, that you've created something. Maybe it's that. Maybe if you're an architect, it's the same thing. I don't know. But, you, you know, to create something that, that's going to last. Okay, that was Lee Rocker, and you know, it's just really awesome to listen to him talking. Uh, you know, being in the same room with him during that interview was just a real joy for me. I grew up a big Elvis fan, and of course, Bill Black was the basis for Elvis in the early days, and Lee really was greatly influenced by Bill Black, and you know, the riding on top of the bass and twirling it around and all of those great tricks. I think he took it to a next level for sure, and just the energy of these guys, I think, is really the most amazing thing to me, you know, in real life and on record and on concert. 
they're just they're a fantastic group of people, and they all like each other still too, which is always a, a nice bonus to it when you listen to their music. Um, during that uh, segment, uh, Lee also did a little. Uh, Shout out to uh, Jess Oliver, the inventor of the baby bass and amplifiers that he's used. And I'm really proud that uh, we years ago got to interview Jess Oliver. And um, those are all available uh, for people to listen to. Mike, where can they check those out? They can head over to www.nam.org slash library. That has our full collection there. And you can watch all of these interviews. So uh, what we're going to listen to next is um, Slim Jim talking about arguably their biggest hit, which was Rock This Town. Uh, Slim Jim likes to refer to it as their uh, rock around the clock, which I think is a great throwback uh, to where their roots are from, where their roots are. Um, But it's just a fantastic little story about uh, about how the song kind of came about and the recording of it. Absolutely. I I remember that song very well when it first came out. It was on the radio all the time. Uh, It was about 13 years old. And for Christmas that year, my older sister, Paula, shout out to her, uh, gave me the 45, which I still have. And um, that was a really, really special gift. You know, that was not only because the song was really popular and I really liked it, but it was, I'm getting the gift of music from people who realize that this is a really important part of my life. So um, very, very special for me. And it's just so great that uh, we have uh, Slim Jim in our collection talking about that very, very song. So here's Slim Jam Phantom telling some great stories about the recording process and about the song Rock This Town. One more thing I'd sure. love to cover with you, if you don't mind, is just get your, your thoughts about a, a one particular tune that you're on. I was, I was going to pick uh, Rock This Town, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, um, um, sure. Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, uh, Rock This Town, it, it, it was really... I, I could, you, know, you could do some research, whatever, but like, I don't know of any song until then, or the last one before that, that was a hit song that had a slap bass on it. So, um, a slapping bass. Um, uh, and um, it really swings hard. And and a bunch of the you know the drums on that are the Jim Chapin book the swings and meets the Ted Reed book the triplet fills with accents on the other and. Um, um, and you know, just that was really our. Um, I mean, if you could be so bold as to say, that was our rock around the clock. That was really the one that we wanted. That's going to be the time capsule one. And the very end of it, um, you know, here's a good, you know, a, a music nerd like me, <laughs> little tidbit of things that I would like, oh, love to find out. Um, at the very end, if you listen to it closely, it goes click, it's supposed to be and I hit the rim by mistake. So since then, it's I've heard other people do it on purpose and um, it goes click, the very ending. And it was kind of a mistake, but it sounds cool, I suppose. You know, and I could say, well, I put the one click in there on the snare, on, on the rim shot before. No, I just kind of missed the drum. And 
and it was a really good take. Everything else was perfect. And it was kind of in the early days before there was any, you know, chopping and slicing. And like, if you screwed up at the end, you had to incur the wrath of the other guys and the producer and the engineer and they got to rewind it. Or you just lived with it or hoped someone didn't notice or have the have have the goodest goodness of the overall take to live with a slight mistake or so that was you know a classic one so we have one of those on there too <laughs> <laughs> okay so you know for sure that as soon as i heard slim jim talking about that mistake he made i had to go and play the record and hear it <laughs> and i'm sure most of you will do the same thing it's fantastic um so our next segment is our last segment of today's special podcast for the Music History Project, uh, which is our, um, our chat with uh, Brian Setzer. You know, we were just talking uh, amongst ourselves that we count this as an interview, even though it was uh, rather short, I think about 10 minutes long, but uh, it still counts for me because we had the chance finally, after several years of trying to, uh, to arrange an interview with him, uh, to sit down and, and chat with him. And uh, this was back in 2016, uh, down in San Diego, where he was performing. I mean, as you probably know, this is a, a very busy guy. He's always in the recording studio. You always see him doing fundraisers and big time concerts and uh, holiday concerts and things like that. So um, the fact that we got him at all is, is still something I'm very proud of. And the way that came about was, um, you know, I've been asking for several years, I think, uh, his management and uh, Scotty Moore, uh, the guitarist for uh, Elvis Presley and uh, a, a good friend of mine, I know was a huge influence and a friend of Brian's. And I just told the manager, you know, it would be great if we could get uh, Brian talking about Scotty Moore. And he immediately said, oh, yeah, he'll want to talk about that. So we hit the right chord. Uh, thank you. Scotty wherever you are um, for helping us with that because that's the trick it took and uh, Brian couldn't have been nicer he really gave us that time devoted that time to us even though I know he was busy people were coming in and saying you know oh we got to go and do this sound check or whatever and he's like no I'm doing this so um, that was really a, a special thing for me and um, and I think this uh while it's short, it also has another very special place in my heart, and that is just to back up and tell you a little bit about what it's like conducting these interviews, oftentimes with um, the majority of the people that we interview are folks that have never been interviewed before, store owners and, you know, little known uh, engineers of companies who created a musical product or something like that, even heads of companies like uh, Rose Sure at Sure Microphones, never been interviewed. So those type of people is what I'm normally used to interviewing. So when we throw in the mix the BB Kings and the Keith uh, Emersons and people like that, uh, and Brian Setzer, it's a little intimidating um, to think, okay, what am I going to do that's any different than everybody else? And of course, we do have our niche at NAM and talking about uh, our industry with the celebrities that we also interview and of course their gear, where it came from. So when I asked Brian 
um, about visiting music stores as a kid, he just lit up, as you will hear. Um, and wow, nobody's ever asked me that before. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm still riding high on that comment. Like, hey, hey, all right, that's awesome. That's exactly what I've always wanted to do. Ask something that hasn't been asked before that is extremely important for our collection. So, um, so that was the highlight for me for sure. So without further ado, as we continue our podcast on the Stray Cats, here's Brian Setzer. Well, thanks for taking the time for us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about Scotty. Unfortunately, we lost him this year, but um, his legacy continues, and he was such a great influence, I know, on your career. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what he means to you. To me, when I heard Scotty Moore play, that was... That, that guitar dragged me across the room and said, listen to me, I think Scotty invented rock and roll guitar. I think he was, he, he was the first one. He, and just that sound that he, he kind of created that, the slap back echo. And before it was rock and roll, it was called rockabilly. And he was right in there. And man, that was, nobody did it before him. He kind of had to put all that together and he invented that. We all take bits and pieces of Scotty Moore, but Scotty invented that sound. Very well said, absolutely. Well, and I think about like listening to those recordings of like the Wranglers that were on some records before Elvis, you could still make out his sound, right? I mean, it was so unique that it wasn't just for one in a particular recording. I mean, he was unique from the very beginning. Scotty was unique from the very beginning, yeah. His, it's, you know, you could change guitars with someone, you could give them different amps, but you always know when it's the player, like a guy like Scotty Moore, he could... Uh, Scotty told me, this is a good story, I don't know if, if Scotty ever said this to anyone, he told me when he was in the Navy, he was playing a Fender Broadcaster guitar and we got out, he had to stand up with Elvis and the guitar would go down because he was on a ship and he never stood up. So he had to get another guitar and that's when he bought the, 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 the ES-295, the gold Gibson. It's a great story. I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't know if many people know, that's what Scotty told me. Yeah, I got off that Navy ship and the guitar went like this. And I had to stand up with Elvis, so he bought the other guitar. <laughs> when did you first meet him? Um, I think I first met Scotty probably when we were coming through Nashville and he came to see us uh, with the Stray Cats. And then later on, Lee Rocker got Scotty more involved with some touring in Scotty's later days, one of the few times Scotty went out. And I got to hop on stage and play with Scotty and Lee. It was, that was great. That's fantastic. Another aspect of his career that not a lot of people know about was the engineering aspect. I mean, he had his own studio and he did a lot of stuff with Sun later on, I think with Philips Sound and so on. Are you familiar with any of that stuff? And, and does that sort of uh, go in keeping with your thoughts about his ingenuity as far as music goes? You, you're just cluing me in on that. I don't know about that. No, no, I didn't know Scotty had a, a studio and was doing that. Mm -mm. It's amazing to me how many thoughts this guy had. I mean, not just in playing, but of course you can pick up on that, right? I mean, somebody who can always make something fresh in his performance. Yeah, um, Scotty was like, he was just, to me, a down-to-earth guy that happened to play guitar the way he did. I mean, 
it was like talking to my dad about something or like an uncle or something. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't brag about it. You know, like, oh, well, yeah, I did that. I, I played guitar with uh, that guy Elvis. But he would, you had to kind of make him talk about it. You know, he'd rather talk about what he had for lunch or, you know, you know, your girlfriends or your wife or something like that, you know. Well said, absolutely. So do you think of him when you play like Blue Moon of Kentucky and stuff? Ah, uh, I, every time. I mean, all the sun stuff and you know all the mysterious little things that he did that he he showed me one thing that i think probably the only guy that knows how to do it um it's um it's on um it's on it is on blue moon of kentucky it's a little step down he does i remember keith reading uh, that keith richards didn't know how to do it and Scott, scotty would always turn away i know how to do it and it's a crazy little thing that, uh, and it's one of those things you, you think, well, why would he do it like that? Anybody else would play an A to an A flat minor to an F sharp minor to an E. But Scotty did something different. He played the A, then he thumbed that F sharp and played the, the high A flat and E flat. So just two notes. Just to be different. It's a crazy little thing. Guitar player stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, Mystery Train's been my favorite, and I just... You know, what are your thoughts about that tune? God, anyone who hears a mystery train turns around and goes, whoa, what's that? You know, that, that, that riff that we take for granted, he invented. He, he came up with that. And it just gets the train, it gets the train rolling. You know, Scotty probably used a thumb pick and two fingers. And it got it, you know, he invented that riff. Well said. Yeah, that's awesome. Another question I'd love to talk to you quickly about is your relationship with Gretsch and, and how that first started. Do you remember your first Gretsch? Well, my first Gretsch guitar is the one that I used in the Stray Cats. Uh, I still have, luckily. It's been, you know, it's been through it all. It's been lost. It's been stolen. And uh, it's, a, it's a 59 Chet Atkins model. And I got it because I wanted to look like Eddie Cochran. I wanted to sound like Eddie Cochran. And they were impossible to find. You couldn't find one. And I bought it in my local paper for a hundred bucks. And the electronics were in a shoebox, and the guitar was on one side. It didn't have a case. And uh, the guy was starting to refinish it. Still has a little spot where he sanded it through. And I, I gave him the hundred bucks, which was you know, like ten thousand bucks now to me. To make a hundred bucks, then was like a lot of money. And I gave him the hundred bucks and. I, took the shoebox and the guitar and out the door I went. I, and it's still the best sounding one, you know. I don't take it out anymore. Well, once in a while, I'm afraid it's gonna get lost or stolen. It's still, it's still the best sounding one. So, you know, there's thousands of young musicians that dream about their first guitar like you did and you finally get that and then you get a relationship with the company that actually makes it. I mean, what was that like? Yeah, to actually get your own guitar, and now it's going on 25 years, is, is um, the, only, the only guy that had that at the time was Les Paul and Chet Atkins. There weren't really any modern guys, so when Gretsch wanted to, you know, redo the guitar, not just reissue the guitar, but make it the way I had customized it, I was like, wow, I'm up there with Les Paul now, you know, I, I've got a model, they're going to do Brian Setzer model guitar. And uh, it's not an easy guitar to make, you know, it's an archtop guitar and, you know, to get that whole thing right took a lot of work. 
and uh, Gretchen had been really, really, really forthcoming and really good about doing those things right, doing them um, the way they used to, but adding the improvements that we've managed to come up with over the years to make them rock. <laughs> well said. Be hard to improve on that. That's great. Thank you so much. Do you have memories of going to music stores when you were a kid? Like, did you ever get the Manny's or anything like that? That's a great question. I've never been asked that. Oh, heck, man. I remember just, like, taking the bus all the way up, you know, way past my zone, you know, out, uh, all the way to Hempstead, and, you know, just, just so I could see guitars. And there was another guy named Gary. He, um, it was, we had a shop called Grayson's Music. And, you know, I would go there just because this older guy, Gary, would go, but he would fix the guitars and he would talk to us young guys and he'd give us, you know, a guitar to play, you know, and that was such a big deal for us, you know, to play a real Telecaster or something or you know Les Paul we couldn't afford those and he would let us play it you know so it was a big thing uh, we did that all the time you know or to go to Manny's or something on 48th Street that was the big thing to go to Manhattan you know and actually get into those shops that was a little less personal because there was real you know it was a real music store with guys coming in and out buying stuff and uh, but yeah that, that was a big deal to actually do all of that that was a great memory Cool. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, <laughs> I remember Manny's with all the pictures, right? Yeah. Uh, anybody else who's been in there? They, yeah, they had a picture of Buddy Holly, you know, autographed with a Strat. I remember seeing that going, even then thinking it was special. You know, wow, look at this Buddy Holly bought a Strat here. You know, I think it was the one that he really used, you know, the, the 58, I think it was. I think, I think he got it at Manny's, you know. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, once again, that was Brian Setzer. Very cool to hear his voice, as well as the other Stray Cats, Slim Jim and Lee Rocker. And that actually concludes it for this episode of The Music History Project, the first remote recording of The Music History Project. I think it went over pretty well, and hopefully got you guys think so too. And you will hear from us again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.